Hi everyone. So, it's been a while. I'm really excited about this story. This is more of a, is the person a villain or a victim story? So, this is kind of in between. This is kind of the gray area. And gray areas are always so hard to define. Because again, are they the villain or are they the victim? So, if you're new here, this is Murder, Mystery, and History. My name's Christy. So, I've actually heard this story a numerous amount of times and it's one of those stories that sort of shakes you to your core it's full of these twists and turns that you don't think you would do but what if you were in the same situation would you do the exact same thing so I want to talk about Jennifer Pan her parents would immigrate from Vietnam and they'd move to Canada in 1979 they were political refugees when they immigrated. So, her parents were named Buck and Hugh Pan. And they would find jobs at the Magna International, which was an auto parts manufacturer. They would have two children, Jennifer, born June 17, 1986, and son Felix, born 1989. So, both Bick and Hugh would save up enough money to buy a large home in Toronto, in a predominantly Asian neighborhood. Or neighborhood that had a lot of Asian immigrants within it. And the thing is, both Bick and Hugh drove luxury cars. Like, I think Hugh drove a Mercedes, and I think that Bick drove a Lexus. So it, they seemed to be affluent in that sense. Now, they would also accumulate $200,000 in savings. So Jennifer's parents would actually set extremely high expectations on her. And I mean extremely high in terms of education. She was taking piano lessons at age four. And she would spend, if she wasn't taking piano lessons, she would spend the majority of the week learning to figure skate. So she would spend most of the week either in front of a piano or on the ice. And the expectation was her to become an Olympic figure skater. And to become a figure skater, like, you have to be better than the best. You have to be so good that it hurts. But what would end up happening for Jennifer, she tears a ligament in her knee, and this shatters any dream of becoming an Olympic figure skater. She was in school band, and her parents would pick her up every single day, and any extracurricular activity she did was monitored so closely that she could barely breathe. Some nights during elementary school, Jennifer would come home from skating practice at 10 p.m., do her homework until midnight, and then she'd go to bed. For a kid in elementary school, this is a nightmare. How much pressure would you have? And with a lot of people who are so pressured, so stressed out, so used to being perfect, sometimes mental health problems begin. Because Jennifer had so much mental health, so much pressure put onto her, she began cutting herself. Little horizontal cuts, just on her forearms. And that already is indicative of so much alone. Self-harm is such a slippery slope, and if you are struggling with it, I'm so sorry. Please seek treatment. Now, this didn't stop after elementary school for Jennifer. This was her whole experience. The things that Jennifer was and wasn't allowed to do vary. So, because her whole school experience was so monitored closely, 
and any extracurricular activity was monitored so closely, her social life was nothing. She didn't have a social life. There wasn't an output for her. She wasn't allowed to date. Any dances the school had, she wasn't allowed to go to. If one of her friends or classmate had a party, she wasn't allowed to go at all. And as a little kid, can you imagine in elementary school, you know, your friend Sally Jane in grade two is having a birthday party and you're not allowed to go because you have to focus on your grades. Like that, that would be so damaging to anybody's psyche. Now, her parents feared if she did any of these activities, she would get distracted. Her grades would slip. All their hard work would come to an end. And like, if we're talking by the time Jennifer was an adult at 22, she had only ever gone on vacation with her family. She'd never had an alcoholic beverage. She'd never gone out with friends. I mean, her life was so oppressive. One can imagine the toll this put on her emotionally, mentally, and in some cases, physically. It's interesting to note that despite all of this, Jennifer didn't really get good grades at all. The only thing she did well at was music. She quite often was averaging out at 70 on her classes. And 70s aren't even that great. 70s are mediocre at best. If you're in the States, I would think that would be like almost a D. Maybe a high C. And it, it was at the point where so much pressure was on this young girl, she began to forge everything so she never got in trouble. And in terms of, she would forge report cards, notes from the teacher. She did all of this just so she could never get in trouble. Like the, the amount of work that you would have to do to forge a report card is tremendous. And to think that you have to, it, it, it's just insane. So when she's in grade 12, she fails calculus. But the problem is, if she fails calculus, she can't graduate high school. And the other problem is she got early admittance to Ryerson University. And once she failed calculus, her early acceptance was gone. She couldn't go to Ryerson University. And Jennifer began to pretend that she was admitted and attending university after high school. She would literally tell her parents that she won a scholarship. And that's why she didn't have these large tuition fees. Now, it's a lot of work pretending to be in university. Jennifer would purchase secondhand textbooks and watch pharmacology videos. So if she was asked, she could sound like she was in class. She would literally go out and buy notebooks and write fake notes. So if her parents asked her, she could be like, hey, look, here are my notes. And she would literally sit in cafes when she was supposed to be in school and teach piano and work in a restaurant to earn money. And here's the thing. Despite the lack of social necessities that Jennifer had, she ended up having a boyfriend. His name was Daniel Wong. And they actually went to school together. But she told her parents that she wanted to live closer to the university with a friend of hers. And they actually agreed that, yeah, the commute's really bad. Why don't you do that? When in reality, she was living with Daniel and his family. Daniel was an active drug dealer. And when she stayed with Daniel, she would actually stay with Daniel and his family. And lying to Daniel's parents, she said, Oh yeah, my parents are fine with this. They don't, they don't mind that I'm staying here a couple nights a week. It's okay. But Daniel's parents wanted to meet her parents over dim sum. And she kept saying, No, 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 it's okay. You know, my parents are okay with this. And she, she just brushed it off repeatedly, repeatedly. So it's after two years. And theoretically, it's time for her to graduate. And so her parents are like, well, we want to go see you graduate. 
And Jennifer and Daniel ended up hiring someone they found online to create this fake transcript full of A's to show her parents. And when it came to the ceremony, Jennifer tells her parents that she had an extra large class, there weren't enough students, or there weren't enough seats for graduating students' family, they were only allowed one guest each, she didn't want a friend, she didn't want one of her parents to feel left out. She gave her ticket to a friend. She also says at this point, she got accepted into the University of Toronto. So she's going to go do another degree there for pharmacology, an even better degree. And it all sounds very deceitful and exhausting, putting so much effort into this, and I'm sure it was. And I don't know if I was, this is so off topic, but so re relevant. I don't know if anybody watched Judge Judy as a child, or it's just me. Anyways, Judge Judy always said, you don't need a good memory if you're honest. If you're not honest, you have to keep up making lie after lie after lie, which is why you need a good memory. This is exactly what happened here. Jennifer's still studying, supposedly, at the University of Toronto, and her lies started to collapse around her. So she's telling her parents there's this new there, there's this new development at the at the um, hospital, and it's volunteering at the blood testing lab for sick for sick kids, and you know sometimes it required late nights, you know late shifts on Fridays and weekends. Maybe maybe mom dad I could spend more of the week at my friend's house. So initially her parents are like, okay, you know, like that's okay. We'll allow this because, you know, you're quote unquote working at the hospital. But it's her dad who notices something odd. Jennifer has no uniform or key card. So how is she supposed to work at the hospital? So the next day he insists, you know what? Why don't you spend the Thursday night here instead of going to your friend's house? We'll drop you off at the hospital. So they stop the car. They let her out. And her dad looks at his wife and goes, you know, Nick, I'm, something's off here. I want you to go follow Jennifer. Go see what she's really doing at the hospital. So Jennifer realizes that her mom's following her. And she hides in the waiting area of the ER for a few hours until they leave. So the next morning, they call her friend, whose house she's supposed to be at. And the friend goes, what are you talking about? She's not here. When Jennifer comes home, shit hits the fan. Her dad confronts her and she finally breaks down and she says, you know what? I didn't volunteer at the hospital. I, I, I never went, I've never been in University of Toronto's pharmacology program. I didn't go to Ryerson and I've been staying at Daniel's house instead of my friends. She did, you know, not tell them she never graduated high school and you know, she doesn't tell them any of, she doesn't tell them that she never graduated high school, but her mom weeps. Her dad's infuriated. He tells Jennifer to get out of the house, never come back. But her mom convinces him and says, you know, maybe, maybe we, we, we just put so much pressure on her. Let's just, you know, let's let her stay. So they take away Jennifer's cell phone and laptop for two weeks she was only permitted to use them when her parents were around, and she had to endure surprise checks of her message. With any message she had, email, text message, voicemail, anything. And what they did do is they said, you can never see Daniel. You can't, you can't work at the restaurant anymore. You can quit all of your jobs except for teaching piano. And perhaps what I think is one of the most oppressing things is they began tracking the odometer, odometer, on her car. 
Jennifer, for her part, is madly in love with Daniel. And for the two weeks she's housebound, she's going stir-crazy. Her mom's by her side constantly. But Vic tells Jennifer where her dad had hidden her phone, so she could check her messages every now and then. It's February of 2009, and she writes on her Facebook page, Living in my house is like living under house arrest. She also posted a note, No one person knows everything about me, and no two people put together knows everything about me. I like being a mystery. So over the spring and the summer, she she's sneaking these calls with Daniel, these secret lovelorn messages in the middle of the night. And, you know, soon enough, her parents are like, okay, we're starting to gain some trust back in you. And she enrolls in a calculus class to finish high school. Still, she's not stopping seeing Daniel. That's not happening. She sees him in between piano lessons. And one night, she gets ballsy enough to sneak out of her house. At almost age 24, she has to sneak out of the house. And arranges her blankets to look like she's asleep. And then she goes to Daniel's. But she forgot that she had her mother's wallet. In the morning, Bick goes into her room to get it. And she sees that Jennifer's not there. They call her, Jennifer answers, and tell, you know, Bick and Han, Bick and Hugh, order Jennifer. Like, you gotta come home now, immediately. That's it. You're done. So, her parents are now demanding she apply to college. She could still be a pharmacy lab technician or nurse, but she couldn't do any of that with Daniel. She had to stop seeing Daniel. Now, Daniel and Jennifer are not stopping, but... Daniel's kind of had enough of this secret Romeo and Juliet love story. You know, Jennifer's 24 at this point. She's sneaking around. She's terrified of her parents. She's not willing to leave home. And he tells her, I can't be with you until you figure this out. Like, I don't want to be a secret. I don't want to have this, have this be a secret. Like, figure it out. And then when you're done, maybe we can get back together. So it's a couple of weeks later, she learns that Daniel is seeing a girl named Christine. And she's absolutely heartbroken. So in this bizarre attempt to win back his attention and make him fall in love with her again and, and make Christine look like a horrible person, she's, she makes up this horrible tale. She tells him a man knocked on her door and flashed what looked like a police badge. She opens the door, a group of men rushes in, gang rapes her. And then a few days later, she says, I got this bullet in an envelope in my mailbox, it, you know, Christine did this. I'm supposed to leave you alone. This is her way of saying, leave my boyfriend alone. And it's just bizarre that she felt the need to do this. So now it's the spring of 2010. Jennifer actually reconnects with an old friend from elementary school, Andrew Montemir. And, you know, he's telling her that like, oh yeah, I robbed people at knife point in the park near my house. And when he's asked later on, he denies this. And Jennifer's telling him about her relationship with her dad. And Andrew confesses to her that, you know, I once considered killing my own father. And Jennifer thinks about this and begins thinking how much better her life would be without her father around. So now Andrew introduces Jennifer to his roommate, Ricardo Duncan. And he's, by all accounts, a stereotypical goth kid. He's got the black nail polish, black hair, etc. If you're, if you're a goth person... I, I, I feel like I still am at this age. This is a stereotypical thing. I don't think all goth people are the same. I think we're all very different. But we're going to move forward. 
So in between her piano lessons, Jennifer hatches a plan. She says to Duncan, I want you to murder my father in a parking lot at his work. And he worked at a tool and dye company. And she gives him allegedly $1,500 from her piano classes. And Duncan's like, all right, let's connect by phone. We'll arrange the date, the time, whatever. Now, Ricardo Duncan stops answering her calls. And by early July, Jennifer realizes he took her money. And that's it. He's not going to do shit. And for his part, Ricardo Duncan says that, you know, she calls him in early July. Early July, she's hysterical. She's requesting he come kill her parents. And he actually tells her, like, I'm offended. No, I'm not doing that. And he also will state later on the only money she gave him was $200 for a night out, which he promptly returned the funds. Now, but here's the thing. Daniel Wong has provided a spare phone for Jennifer to call him on. So in the middle of the night, she takes her spare phone out of hiding and switches SIM cards. And then that way, it doesn't show on her phone that the one that her parents know of that she's called Daniel. This is how they're communicating. This is the same phone she used to ask him stage a robbery to kill her parents. So Daniel and Jennifer are back in contact and they're exchanging these flirty little texts like I love you, I miss you baby, etc. But what they did start doing is they started talking about, well, what if we hire a hit on Vic and Hugh? What if we collect the estate? Jennifer's portion totals about $500,000. They could live together, be, you know, husband and wife, etc. So the phone that Daniel gave Jennifer is a spare iPhone, and he gives her the SIM card. And he connects her with somebody named Leonard Lenford, Lenford Crawford. He ends up calling this guy Homeboy. And Jennifer's talking to Crawford and she asks what the going rate for a contract killing was. And Crawford replies, ah, you know, it's $20,000, but because you know Daniel, I'll do it for ten. And Jennifer's actually really careful. She uses the iPhone for crime-related conversations. And she uses her Samsung, the one she uses with her parents, for everything else. So it's Halloween, 2010, and Crawford is visiting her neighborhood, and he's probably just to scout around the site, but because there's kids in costumes streaming up and down the street, he doesn't have to worry about looking weird because there's already, oh, he, he, if anybody says anything, he could say, oh, my cousin was trick-or-treating or my daughter, etc. He has literally the perfect cover now to scope out the area. So it's November 2nd, 2010. Daniel texts Jennifer saying, you know... I, we have a problem here. I feel as strongly about Christine as I do about you. And suddenly, Jennifer goes in this tirade. She's texting Daniel saying, you feel for her what I feel for you. Then call it off with homeboy. And Daniel responds, I thought you wanted this for you. And Jennifer says, I do, but I have nowhere to go. Daniel writes back, call it off with homeboy. You said you wanted this with or without me. And Jennifer states, I want it for me. The next day, Daniel texts her, I did everything and I lined it all up for you. It seemed that Daniel suddenly has this streak of conscience. And it feels like he wants out. He doesn't want to do this anymore. It doesn't seem like a good idea. But within a couple of hours, they revert back. So initially, he doesn't want to do this. And then it's like, okay, yeah, you know what? Actually, I, I, I do. I do want to help you with this. And 
Crawford takes, texts Jennifer later that day. I need the time of completion. Think about it. Jennifer writes back. Today is a no-go. Pin our plans. We won't be home in time. So within the following week, there's this flurry of text and phone conversation between Jennifer, Daniel, and Crawford, which I, you know, for people talking, like, why would you leave so much evidence? Like text messages, phone calls, you know what I mean? Like, just stupid. Like, I think this was done so stupidly, there was so much evidence left. So it's the morning of November 8th. Crawford texts Jennifer. After work, okay? We'll be game time. So now we kind of have an idea of what's going to happen. So that evening, Jennifer ends up watching two shows, Gossip Girl and John and Kate Plus 8 in her bedroom while her father's reading the Vietnamese news down the hall and he heads to bed around 8.30. And Vic was out line dancing with her friends and a cousin. Felix, who was studying engineering at McMaster University, wasn't home. So it's 9.30 p.m. now. Bic finally comes home from her line dancing class. She changes into pajamas, soaked her feet in front of the TV. You know, at 9.35, a man named Donald, a friend of Crawford's, called Jennifer, and they spoke for nearly two minutes. Jennifer went downstairs to say goodnight to Bic, and, his, and Jennifer later admits she unlocks the front door. She'll eventually retract this statement. At 10.02 p.m., the light upstairs, the light in the upstairs study, pardon me, is apparently switched on. This is the signal that she was using, and a minute later, it was switched off. At 10.05, David calls again, and he and Jennifer speak for three and a half minutes. Moments later, Crawford, David, and a third man named Eric Carty walk through the front door. They're all carrying guns. One points his gun at Bic, while another one runs upstairs and shoves a gun at her father's face, directing him out of bed, down the stairs, into the living room. So Jennifer's upstairs, and Eric Cardi confronts Jennifer outside her bedroom door. According to her, Eric ties her arms behind her using a shoelace. He directs her back inside, and he she has to hand over approximately $2,500 in cash. Then ushers her, then he goes to her parents' bedroom, and he locates $1,100 in U.S. funds. And finally, goes to the kitchen, because he's going to search for her mother's wallet. So now, her parents are speaking Cantonese. Bic asks Han, how can they enter the house? I don't know, I was sleeping. Hugh replies, shut up, you talk too much. One of the intruders, one of the men, yells at her father. Where's my fucking money? Or where's the fucking money? who had $60 in his wallet and said as much. One of the men calls him a liar, pistol whips him on the back of the head. Vic begins crying, and she's begging the men not to hurt her daughter. And one of these three men replies, don't worry, she's nice. We're not going to hurt her. So Eric leads Jennifer back upstairs, ties her arms to the banister, while David and Crawford take Vic and who to the basement, they cover their heads with blankets. They shoot Hugh twice, once in the shoulder and then in the face. He crumples to the floor. They shoot Bic three times in the head, killing her instantly. Then they flee through the front door. So the thing about what they did with the... 
how they killed Bick three times in the head. Usually, when you're killing someone execution style, which is what I'm assuming here, it's personal. It's not random. Three times in the back of the head, once would be more than enough. Three times indicates there's something at stake here. To the face and the head, or pardon me, the shoulder and the face, that was sloppy. The shoulder was to incapacitate in case he was able to free, in case he was able to free himself from his bonds. The face was more to shut him up. So you have to think, these are not people who are good at this. And I'm not saying that I know anybody who contracts kills, because, like, this is just all speculation from my part. But so, somehow, Jennifer manages to reach her phone, which is conveniently tucked into the waistband, waistband of her pants. She later disclaims having her hands tied behind her back. So she dials 911. She's screaming, help me, please. I need help. I don't know where my parents are. Please hurry. Now, at the 34-second mark of the call, the unexpected happens. Her father starts moaning. He's awake, he's covered in blood, and he sees his dead wife's body next to him. He's crawling up the stairs to the main floor. Jennifer yells to him, she's calling 911. Who stumbles outside? He's screaming wildly and encounters his neighbor who is about to leave for work. The neighbor called 911. Police and ambulance arrive at the scene minutes later. So Hugh is rushed to a nearby hospital and then he's airlifted to Sunnybrook Hospital. Now, when Jennifer's interviewed just before 3 a.m., she tells them the men entered the house looking for money, tied her to the banister, took her parents to the basement, and shot them. Now, two days later, the police brought her in again because they want to get a second statement. At, her, at their request, she showed them how she contorted her body to get her phone, a flip phone, out of her waistband to place a call while tied to the banister. So now, holes are starting to be very apparent, very apparent in this story. One of the best holes there is, is if this was a home invasion, the keys to Hans, Hans, pardon me, Hugh's Lexus were in plain view by the front door. Why didn't the intruders take the car? You know, and wouldn't they have had to crowbar the way to get in? Wouldn't they have a backpack to carry loot or zip ties to, you know, make sure nobody went anywhere you know like these are pretty pretty good questions and the most damaging question they would ask is why would they shoot the two witnesses but leave one unharmed so now there is a surveillance team to monitor jennifer's tracks now she's being monitored and watched every single day so it's november 12th now he was woken up from his three-day induced coma so, obviously, they had to put him in a coma, coma to save his life. So, he has a broken bone near his eye, which is so lucky that it didn't go into his skull. Bullet fragments are lodged in his face, and the doctors actually can't remove them. And he has a shattered neck bone. Now, what is probably divine intervention at this point is the bullet that went to his shoulder grazed the carotid artery. And the carotid artery is goes, is one of the most important arteries in your body. And for it to have just grazed, that's divine intervention, I would think. Because 
If you got shot in the carotid, you would bleed out. That's one of the biggest arteries in your body. So it's nothing short of divine intervention. And he remembers everything. He actually remembers seeing Jennifer chatting like with one of the men like a friend. And that her arms weren't tied behind her back while she was being led around the house. So now Jennifer's led in for a third interview. And this one kind of has like a, a different monotone to it. So the detective, William Goats, tells her he knows she's involved in the crime. He knows she lied to him and it was in her best interest to fess up. What does Jennifer say? She starts hunched. She hunches her body over. She starts sobbing and she starts asking repeatedly, but what happens to me? What happens to me? So over the span of almost four hours, Jennifer sends out this absurd explanation. She says that this was her elaborate plan to commit suicide. It went horribly wrong. She had given up on life. She couldn't manage to kill herself. So she wanted to hire homeboy whose real name she didn't even know to kill her. In September, her relationship with her father had suddenly improved and she decided to call off the hit. But somehow wires got crossed. The men ended up killing her parents instead of her. So now we have this woman saying, well, you know, I was trying to kill myself. I hired a contract killer to kill me. And he didn't kill me, but he killed my parents. But I wanted to, you know, call off the hit on myself. So she's understandably arrested on the spot. And in the spring of 2011, there's analysis of cell phone calls and texts. They take Daniel, David, Eric Cardi, and Lenford Crawford, and all five of them are charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. So, her trial began on March 19th, 2014, and it was expected to last six months, but it was almost a year. There were more than 50 witnesses who would testify, more than 200 exhibits, or pieces of evidence, Jennifer was on the stand for seven days. She was trying to trying to say she wasn't guilty. She was trying to explain all the text messages that proved her guilt. She was desperately trying to convince the jury that, well, she had ordered a hit on her parents. Three months later, she changed her mind. She didn't want to do it anymore. You know, she made a mistake. She doesn't want to do it anymore. And But the weird thing is, like, before the delivery... The jury delivered the verdict. Jennifer seems upbeat, playful. She's sitting there making these little eyes at her lawyer. She's picking lint off her lawyer's robes. You know, when she was deemed guilty, she showed no emo emotion. But once the press was gone, because this was a highly, highly covered press event, she would start to weep. She would shake. She was uncontrollable. Jennifer receives an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years for the attempted murder, murder of her father. She received another sentence of life to be served concurrently for the death of her mother. Her cohorts, Daniel, David, and Crawford, each received the same sentence. Eric Cardi's lawyer fell ill during the trial, and his trial was postponed to early 2016. So, here's the thing. The judge also granted um, two non-communication orders. 
So Jennifer is banned from communicating um, any of the five, anyone who was involved in this until Eric Cardi's trial is complete. So she's not allowed to contact Eric Cardi, Daniel, David, or Crawford. But an, there is a second non-communication order. And the second one was between Jennifer and her family. She's not allowed to speak to her father or brother ever again. Her lawyer actually says, you know, Jennifer's open to communicating with the family if they want to. So her dad wrote probably of one of the best victim impact statements. He goes, when I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. Some say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel like I'm dead too. So now who can't work anymore due to the injury sustained? He suffers anxiety attacks, insomnia, and when he can sleep, when he can sleep, his nightmares. He's in constant pain. He can't do any of the activities that bring him joy anymore. He used to love gardening, working on cars, listening to music. He can't, can't do any of that. He can't bear to be in the house his wife died in, so he lives with relatives nearby. His son moves to the East Coast, finds work, and his son will suffer from depression. And his son actually moved to the East Coast to be work with a private company because he can't bear to work in Toronto because of what his sister did. Because people are going to constantly, he wants to escape the stigma of being her brother. At the end of her father's statement, victim statement, he addresses his daughter. He says, I hope my daughter Jennifer thinks about what has happened to her family and maybe one day she can become a good honest person someday. So between everybody who was part of this hit, Jennifer, David, Crawford, and Daniel are going to try and appeal. They want to try and get parole. Presuming that they are unable to get parole. They'll be eligible in almost 10 years, actually, in 2035. Jennifer will be 49 and Daniel will be 50. So there's like a ton of things that you can ask yourself here. One of the things is, was Jennifer suffering from mental illness? Was this just somebody who had been so oppressed her entire life that she finally just snapped? Or was it that she truly just wanted to kill her parents for the sheer fun of it, for just the money? I mean, really. It's hard to say what the true reason is why Jennifer did what she did, why she went along and was on, was trying to get away with this. I mean, quite frankly, what really ended up happening here, I think the most damning of evidence is that her father survived and he was able to give the testimony that he gave and this is really like one of those things you'll never really know but for her to sit there and think my life would be so much better without my parents and I could be free if I just call a hit out on them and it's hard to say whether she's a villain or a victim in this story it's just really the gray area that we all I mean if you're if you were in the same position what would you have done so that's kind of the story of Jennifer Pan. And like I said, it is, it's the gray area. So the best praise I can ever get is if you share the podcast with a friend. 
So you can follow me on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Overcasts, CastBox, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. So if there's a story that you want me to talk about, you can email me at murdermysteryandhistory at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Murder Mystery and History, same profile picture as the podcast. And Twitter, but are we still using Twitter anymore since the whole Elon Musk thing? I don't know. All right. Until we meet again. Oh, pardon me. So if you are still using Twitter, Murder Mystery and History on Twitter, but again, are we still using Twitter because of Elon Musk? I, I, I don't know. But until we meet again. <laughs>